this fucking rhino <laughs> when I was a child. Yeah. This was up there with the like wolf from the never ending story. Okay. Uh, as like things that legitimately f- kept me up at night. The, like the was... fucking rhino <laughs> coming in out of the clouds to kill my parents. And my name was James. Uh-huh. That shit fucking that went deep and it scarred me. And uh, I, I I didn't even remember that scene. <laughs> The rhino coming out of the clouds <laughs> is fucking terrifying to this day. And like it happens twice. It happens first and he loses his family and you're like, oh, fuck. And then later on, <laughs> they like fight it, especially for the time, man, that those effects. I was like, this is really happening right now. And uh, that, that really stuck. With I love me. that. I love to hear about the things that traumatized us as kids. <laughs> Welcome, friends, to episode 225 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Roald Dahl's 1961 novel and Henry Selick's 1996 film of the same name, James and the Giant Peach. So in this movie, I think there was a song about my name being James. Yeah. You want to uh, give us a verse? I wish. I wish I remembered it. And it's, it's funny because I, you know, I, I mentioned in, in our past episode where we announced this project that this movie like really stuck with me. Of course, like there were plenty of people that would ask me about my, where's your giant peach at, James? Uh-huh. And, like, you know, the, the classic jokes that you'll get as a kid growing right. up with the name James. But uh, overall, I like the name, but it, it's just funny that the connection there. The yeah. uh, Mine were all Star Wars jokes. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. Luke. I'm your father. Yeah. No, you don't have to. <laughs> they get it. Well, I did my giant peach thing, so. <laughs> it's not even a real line. It's it's no, I am your father. Oh, yeah, you're correct. Yeah. The, uh, but, but that's what everybody says. Movie stuck with me for all those reasons, but then I totally forgot there was a song that's all about, you're such a brave boy, James, and all <laughs> yeah. of this stuff. You're such a good. I was sh- laughing when like, I was hearing that one. <laughs> brave boy, and I was like, thank you. <laughs> so I, I'm. Certain I read this book when I was probably in like third or fourth grade, very young. So I barely remember it, but I have this fond memory of a boy on a giant peach with some bug friends, like out in the ocean, I think is most of my memories around that part of it and the sharks. Um, maybe even my mother read this book to me. That, that's a possible, uh, that's a possibility. And I thought I'd seen this movie, but I'm not sure if I have. At the very least, I, I may have seen a few scenes, but the majority of this movie was not familiar to me. So it's possible I didn't actually watch it. Well, I'm excited to tell you about how traumatized this this film made me, but we'll get into that a little <laughs> bit later. Um, I, I thought that I hadn't read this story, and I absolutely have read this story. And, and yeah. one of the things that really reminded me was some of the illustrations that I saw in my book and online. I'm completely sure that I had read it now. And... Uh, I have an interesting relationship with Roald Dahl material because I remember like BFG being something that I read of his early on and oh, really? I think there's a few others. I don't think I've read any other books by him. I think I've just really? seen seen a lot of the adaptations. But I, I loved BFG when I was a kid too. Like I love yeah. that story. And, and in, in the same way that Harry Potter hit me as an American, like certain British things that would stand mm-hmm. out to me in these stories that I would find to feel like just so 
alien and I was like, oh man, it's it's so cool and it feels like a different world. And uh, I, yeah. I definitely pick up on a, lot, on a lot of that with his writing. And uh, really interesting too, because like for a kid's storyteller, it goes dark and weird and, and like yeah. off-putting at times. He's kind of known for that. So I want to talk to you just before we get before we get into um, Roald Dahl as a person, because there's a lot of interesting stuff about this guy. I, I was doing research into him. I didn't know anything about him going into this project. Um, I, I'd heard the name. And that was really about it. Um, I didn't even know he was British. I would really? have probably bet he was, but yeah. I didn't know. Um, so, it, yeah. Anyway, there's a lot to get into with him. But before that, I just want to talk about our experience. You know, we talked about what, what it was like maybe originally, but this time around uh, reading this book watching this movie maybe a little bit and then we'll then we'll lean more heavily into movie stuff later but uh yeah what was it like rereading this book for you in a similar way to when we covered like where the wild things are um and i feel like there's another one that really stands out to me as a book that we that i read as a kid uh it takes you back in a, such a crazy mm-hmm. way that's almost indescribable it's like you could you could close your eyes and feel like you're a kid in bed like being read to and I am looking forward to if I am lucky enough to have kids one day, like I'm looking forward to reading a story like this because I think there is a lot to like in this story. Uh, I'm looking forward to reading this kind of story to to a child. And, you know, I think as a as a an adult reading it now, there's there's definitely like a formula to it. And there's definitely things that I find to be like really played out because it's a children's novel. But at the same time, there's a certain air of not caring about being super complex in the storytelling devices that there's rhymes that are fun and, and the, the poetry that's yeah. mixed into it. And like exposing children to this kind of story, I think is cool for imagination too, because I really remember this being a, a story that I like. In some ways, I was going to continue to compare it to Harry Potter. This sort of like boy loses both of his parents goes on an adventure in a different world and has like, you know, it, it it feels like there are a lot of similarities and that kind of story had a lot of imagination. I found myself going down many different perspectives reading it, but ultimately really enjoyed it. I'm glad that uh, my namesake has, has a cool book associated with it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think you're, you're touching on some tropes that, that are definitely present in a lot of children's books at least from a certain time period and I, I feel like there's been some pushback against them recently um at least from what i'm familiar with i, I don't write children's uh literature or children's books or anything like that um it's not really a category that i've delved into at all but i uh in at my mfa at seton hill we talk about all different kinds of genres and all different kinds of categories and we definitely touched on some of this kind of stuff and um being an orphan is a trope in a lot of fiction. Um, it's you know that's true in a lot, just all over the place. But uh, in children's fiction, I think it's a big one, right? Ch- children losing their parents and then they're going to live usually with some sort of like evil stepmother <laughs> kind of figure, right? And it g- goes all the way back to Cinderella, probably. Um, and Roald Dahl absolutely uses that here. Um, and then you're talking about J.K. Rowling, who is also you know a British writer who maybe is looking to someone like Roald Dahl as someone she read g- growing up, probably. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, like the, the Chronicles of Narnia C.S. Lewis, stuff. yeah. C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis, yeah. Um, and this is this is what I would call more like middle grade as opposed to um, young adult, which we've covered other young adult books like um, Shadow and Bone. Um, mm-hmm. and it's, it's stuff like that where it's like uh, for teenagers. This is aimed more at that younger, like even younger elementary school audience. 
And that's right. when I originally read it. And I think that's when it, that's when it's going to work best. And I, I just want to touch on the, the thing that you mentioned about imagination, I think is key to what made this book work for me. Even as an adult reading it, I could remember perhaps through some nostalgia, but also just recognizing that one of the things that makes Roald Dahl really interesting to me is his ability to evoke wonder in your mind, right? Like, and to, to stoke that feeling of possibility. And there were a few times when I was reading this novel that I was, I was struck with how big it makes the world feel and how, how an adventure can be had. And I loved books where I felt like an adventure could be had, you know, and you can, mm-hmm. you could, you can get out into the world and, and experience things that, you know, you, you could never imagine and they can be wonderful. Um, and, and I think that that combined with his willingness to go there and to like present dark subject matter and to treat children seriously and to present them with things that, like challenges that they might be encountering in their own lives I think that works. And we talked about that a little bit with Dr. Seuss. Um, we've talked about that with a couple of different authors. And um, I, I, I think a lot of the best children's authors tend to do that, at least in, in my experience so far, or at least the ones that stick out to me. Um, and he does that here. So um, I, I really enjoyed reading this book again. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm obviously, this book isn't written for 36-year-old men. Um, <laughs> so it's it's not like I'm the target audience, but I was still able to enjoy it uh, sort of through the lens of my childhood when I did read it and appreciate it now um, for what it is and look at it more from an artistic point of view as someone who could potentially try and write a book, you know, for children one day I could. Um, and I'm, I'm like, I'm looking at it and thinking like, why does it work? Or even like, what could I lift from this for an adult story that could work, you know, in another category? So there's a lot of interesting lessons here regardless. You know, I mentioned this in a in a previous episode where we covered a children's story, but I I always find the specifically genre slash sort of the headspace that you can get into for a children's story to be like such fertile, unintimidating ground to write on. There's a certain like level of forgiveness of like tropiness and like um, it's not even and it has nothing to do with it being dumbed down. You can feasibly say and then a giant peach fell into the ocean and then they rode it and sharks attacked it and then they got seagulls attached to it. You know what I mean? Like that kind of like you can totally yeah. do anything you want feels like a fun like a fun mode to write in. Yeah. And it's not easy. Um, that that level of whimsy, I think it does come to some people naturally. And maybe it did come to him that naturally, but um, it can be hard to achieve because um, it can go against the way you think about the world sometimes. And yeah. Well, not to mention they implement some difficult things like the poetry obviously doesn't come easy. Like writing poetry is one thing, but then also tying it to a story and having it be something that a child would enjoy, like a earworm kind of thing that you might sing again later. Like that's, you know, that takes skill. That kind of stuff is like really, really difficult. A lot of that was really cleverly written too. Yeah. So I also have to mention while I was reading this book, um, and we liked our episodes to be evergreen. So you can listen to them at any point in time and, you know, not feel like you're coming late to the party or whatever. But um, I just feel like I have to mention that the the leaked memo, uh, there was a uh, drafted opinion of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. Uh, the news of that broke while I was reading this book and it definitely took me out of it. I had to like set it down, you know, go doom scroll on Twitter for a while and then come back to it. And just like it, it got me thinking a lot about childhood and just like 
Um, I do not have any kids. Um, currently, my wife and I are child-free by choice. Um, and the ability to do that is something that we, you know, embrace and are glad is an option that we have. So it, it's an important thing for us. And my wife was very upset and talking with her about it and then going like, all right, now I got to go watch this kid's movie. And it, it was just like a weird, I was in a weird headspace for it. So if I, if I sound a little bit like sentimental or just like if my emotions are in a strange place, that's probably why. Um, where I wasn't able to just be like, I'm a full, a full on, just enjoy this as a kid. Like I was, I was too caught up in what's been going on literally over the last few days. Yeah. I mean, like it's obviously historically tragic and, and it's one of those things where it just continues to be all I, all we can say is just go vote for the people who, you know, believe in the, the morals and the ethics of, of what you think is right and like it's like in this time and and in this day and age to think that women's rights are still being challenged in these ways is just ridiculous so well and it's i i know a lot of people are frustrated to get the go vote message oh of course yeah because they're like i i I did that's what that's what i was told two years ago that's what i was told four years ago six years ago um and unfortunately the the message remains the same because this fight is not an easy one otherwise you could just win it and it'd be over it's going to be an ongoing lifelong fight um, and voting is the best course of action we have, um, other than, you know, different forms of protest and direct, direct action, which I do support in a, in a general sense. And I do think that can be effective. So if that, if that's the way you want to go, you know, I support that. There's a lot that can be done and we do need to hold our elected officials accountable and make sure that there's pressure on them to act with the power they do wield. I think it's important to temper that with, some knowledge of the reality that the party is fractured and um, divided and it's incredibly difficult to get this large coalition together to form an opinion. And unfortunately, there are people in the party that, yes, are, quote unquote, in control um, that unfortunately are are not of one mind with the rest of the party and the, and the progressive wing of the party. So um, I just want to say that, like, Yes, I think voting is important. I, yes, I totally get that it's very frustrating to be told that, but um, that is ultimately the best course of action, I think, um, until it is no longer an option. Um, so we'll cross that bridge if we get to it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, yeah, and just also just like, you know, engaging in intelligent conversation with people and like not yeah. belittling and just like just trying your best to... Oh, to... and donating donating to organizations that are doing good work, Planned Parenthood, right. something yeah. I've been donating to for years, so... yeah. Um, stuff like that can can you know really benefit from your help right now and reaching out to people who are in states that are going to be particularly affected by this. Um, all right, let's move on from that uh, sobering topic to talk about Roald Dahl, who is a extremely interesting individual um, who is not without controversy, but is also quite impressive. So do you know anything about him other than the fact that he was Brit- British? Is this going to be mostly news to you? Okay. No, I, I think it's mostly going to be news. Cool. Well, feel free to stop me and react to anything you want to, but I do have a lot to get through. Um, I can't touch on all of it, but I'll just I'll give you some highlights here. So Roald Dahl was born in 1916, and he died in 1990 at the age of 74. He was a British novelist, short story writer, poet, and screenwriter. His books have sold more than 250 million copies worldwide. Dahl was born in Wales to affluent Norwegian immigrant parents and spent most of his life in England. He went on to serve in the Royal Air Force during the Second World War, where he became a fighter pilot, then an intelligence officer, before rising to the rank of acting wing commander. He rose to prominence as a writer in the 1940s, with works for children and adults. 
He has been referred to as, quote, one of the greatest storytellers for children of the 20th century, though he and his work have been criticized for anti-Semitism, racism, and misogyny. In 2008, the Times placed Dahl on the 16th on the list of the 50 greatest British writers since 1945. So his short stories are known for their unexpected endings, and his children's books for their unsentimental, macabre, and often darkly comic mood, featuring villainous adult enemies of the child characters. His children's books champion the kind-hearted and feature an underlying warm sentiment. His most famous works for children include James and the Giant's Peach, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Matilda, The Witches, Fantastic Mr. Fox, and the BFG. And uh, notably, all of those, except for I think The Witches, although it's been announced, have been adapted. So I think all The Witches potential, came out. Did it come out? Yeah. These are all potential things that we could we could cover um we will probably return to roll doll at some point in the future i imagine charlie and the chocolate factory an obvious candidate um I, fantastic mr fox would be really cool like uh, yeah that, that director wes anderson wes anderson would be someone yeah. that would be really cool to cool to cover so i would love to talk about wes anderson um so, so that's just kind of a rough overview of him as a, as a writer and his career i mean that's just a, a, a sampling of some of his most famous novels those are a lot right. of the ones that stood out to me but there's a lot more um, and he wrote for adults as well. He also wrote as a screenwriter, and I saw that he uh, co-wrote the the um, screen screenplay for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, nineteen sixty eight. So Very a couple different a couple different uh, uh, of those. I think one of the Bond films. He like co-wrote one of the Bond films. Oh wow! Which will make more sense if you it, later once I tell you more about his life. Um, so so interesting guy. He he you know he had a, he had a wide range of things, but yeah, he was also criticized for anti-Semitism and misogyny, and we'll, we'll get into some of that later on when we talk about that. Dahl first attended the Cathedral School, Landoff, at age eight. He and his four friends were caned by the headmaster after putting a dead mouse in a jar of gobstoppers at the local sweet shop, which was owned by a, quote, mean and loathsome old woman named Mrs. Pratchett. The five boys named their prank the, quote, Great Mouse Plot of 1924, Gobstoppers were a favorite suite among British schoolboys between the two world wars, and Dahl referred to them as his fictional everlasting gobstopper, which was featured in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. So sweets become an important thing for him from an early age. Also notice he's like getting caned by a headmaster, um, corporal punishment, and um, unfair and villainous adults become a, a recurring theme in his work. So, and I'll continue to, to talk about some of the reasons why. Um, from 1929, when he was 13, uh, Dahl attended the Repton School in Derbyshire. Dahl disliked the hazing and described an environment of ritual cruelty and status domination with younger boys having to act as personal servants for older boys, frequently subject to terrible beatings. His biographer Donald Sturrock described these violent experiences in Dahl's early life. Dahl expresses some of these darker experiences in his writing, which is also marked by his hatred of cruelty and corporal punishment. And we found that in this book, right? Like early on, it's talking about these ants who literally beat James. Like no, no two ways about it. It's like they beat him. Yeah, I was surprised to see that too. I didn't remember that. And uh, it's, you know, in a children's novel, like I, I don't even know that most children, although... I'm sure children who dealt with abuse can relate, but like most, I don't think they understand the gravity of a, of a child being beaten, like most children reading. Um, so it's wild to think about that in, in this children's story. According to Dahl's autobiography, Boy, Tales of Childhood, a friend named Michael was viciously caned by headmaster Jeffrey Fisher. 
Writing in that same book, Dahl reflected, quote, All through my school life, I was appalled by the fact that masters and senior boys were allowed to literally wound other boys, and sometimes quite severely. I couldn't get over it. I never have got over it. Like, that continues to show up again and again in his work. You, and it just I haven't read Matilda, but I've seen the movie. I know that, like, a, a you know, vicious, like, head, headmaster is a very important part of that, that story. Um, and I've seen it in other things, so... Um, Clearly that that imprinted on him. He did go on to say that the incident caused him to, quote, have doubts about religion and even about God. Okay, so next up, we got to talk about his military service. So he had quite the career in the Royal Air Force, including surviving a crash landing in the desert. Uh, He was sent from one place to another and ran out of fuel and crash landed, um, got quite injured, broke his nose, went blind, but ended up getting his sight back, like, Climbed out of a, you know, the like, and these were like the old school biplanes too. I was looking at some of the different planes he flew. Um, someone told him to go to the wrong place, wow. and he couldn't make it on the fuel he had. So he, yeah, he, anyway, crash landed. Six months later, he returns to, and this is in 1939. So in 1940, he returns to the Air Force, where he would go on uh, in separate missions to sh- shoot down two German bombers. And then on April 20th of 1941, he took part in the Battle of Athens alongside the highest scoring British Commonwealth ace of World War II. Of the 12 hurricanes involved, and those were the planes he was flying, so there was only 12, uh, five were shot down and four of their pilots killed. Uh, Greek, Greek observers on the ground counted 22 German aircraft downed, but because of the confusion of the aerial engagement, none of the pilots knew which aircraft they had shot down. Dahl described this as, quote, an endless blur of enemy fighters whizzing toward me from every side. Uh, So then in May, as the Germans were pressing on Athens, Dahl was evacuated to Egypt. His squadron reassembled. Uh, From there, Dahl flew sorties every day for a period of four weeks, shooting down another plane on June 8th and another uh, bomber on June 15th. But then he began to get severe headaches that would cause him to black out. That would ultimately spell the end of his fighting career. So he had quite the storied career. So after this, um, after he's kind of removed from combat, he's sent to America, um, where he became <laughs> he became part of his job was to sort of try and puncture through American first sentiment, where people didn't want to like like America had just entered the war, and they did not want to take like. You know, Pearl Harbor just hadn't been, but there was still a large contingent of Americans who didn't want to be a part of the of the war. And he was trying to get through that. So he'd give all these speeches about like Britain and 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 their need. Um, and part of his job was to quote, my job was to try and help Winston Churchill to get info on FDR and tell Winston that he was in the old boy's mind. Dahl also supplied intelligence to uh, his organization known as the British Security Coordination, which was part of MI6. So he was kind of a spy for <laughs> the was. British. Ian uh, Fleming wrote, wrote James Bond about him, huh? Well, he ended up becoming friends with Ian Fleming. Oh, wow. Yeah. So uh, Dahl was once sent back to Britain by the British embassy officials, supposedly for misconduct. Quote, I got booted out by the big boys, he said. <laughs> Um, and then they, uh, they promptly sent him back to Washington with a promotion to wing commander. Toward the end of the war, Dahl wrote some of the history of the secret organization. Uh, so he, he wrote about the secretive organization he was a part of. He 
left the service with a substantive rank of squadron leader. He, his record of five aerial victories qualified him as a flying ace and has been confirmed by post-war research and cross-referenced in the Axis records. It is most likely that he scored more than those victories during that uh, Battle of Athens that we talked about where it was t- impossible to tell who shot who down. Do you think there's something to seeing the horrors of war and then and then specifically wanting to like uh, cultivate and like and like promote the innocence of children? Because I think it wasn't like Mr. Rogers also wasn't he like a Vietnam vet or something? He was like a sniper or something, right? I don't know if that's true, but I've heard there, that. I, he, I think he definitely served. So, yeah. like, do you think there's something to that? Like, is that like, I mean, like, or do you think these people were always going to write like children's stories? Maybe a bit of both, right? Like, I, I think there is something to being said to like witnessing horrors and wanting to return to a simpler time in your life and recapture the innocence of childhood and focus on that. That's definitely possible. So this is someone who went through war and experienced a lot of trauma. I didn't even touch on like his his sister died when he was very young, and then like that same year his father died. Um, he leaves behind they leave behind this big inheritance. So he was wealthy, but he experienced this tragedy. Right? Um, he gets married to an actress when he comes over to America. They end up having five children. Um, one dies when she's very young. Um, after her, actually, I don't know if she died. She got severely injured. Um, when her uh, the the buggy she was in got hit by a taxi in New York City, and then his daughter died in 1962. For uh, his daughter Olivia of measles, um, so and 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 that he subsequently became a proponent of immunization, and he dedicated his 1982 book The BFG to his daughter. After a meeting with a church official, Dahl came to view Christianity as a sham. After the death of his daughter, he said while mourning the loss, he spot he sought spiritual guidance. Um from the former Archbishop of Canterbury, but he was dismayed when the Archbishop told him that though his daughter Olivia was in paradise, her beloved dog Rowley would never join her there. So he said uh, years later, I wanted to ask him how he could be so absolutely sure that other creatures did not get the same special treatment as us. I sat there wondering if this great and famous churchman really knew what he was talking about and whether he knew anything at all about God or heaven. And if he didn't, then who in the world did? Uh, so yeah, he, he had several uh, difficulties it sounds like throughout his life with that because he, he had all these tragedies right like he's losing shit kid he, you know his sister dies his father dies mm-hmm. um he fights in war he's he, like I, I i read that the guys he signed up with he signed up with 16 total total guys in this uh group and like only five i think survived the war um wow. so went through a lot in his life um he did go on to have an affair with another woman later in life um, and he got divorced with his wife, who is the mother of five. He all throughout all of this, he was a famous writer. Um, so it, it, this is like a, it's, it, it, it's almost too much, right? Like so much to talk about here. But um, I, I do want to at least touch a little bit on some of these accusations. So people have just looked at his work in general. The, the misogyny to me seems to come from maybe some people looking at his affair, but also just in his books, uh, there's a lot of villainous, ugly you know, mean women. Uh, we see that here in the two ants. Um, and apparently that is a, that is a staple in a lot of his books. Um, he, he, you know, said that that wasn't fair. He, he often dismissed this kind of criticism and would talk about some women characters he has that are not like that. And, um, I don't know. I, I did feel a little bit uncomfortable with some of the descriptions. Um, and it has also been noticed that he often has, um, very obese characters be very villainous 
Um, mm-hmm. This is another trope we've talked about on this podcast a lot, where where your your sort of um, moral character is tied to your physical appearance. That's definitely present here. Like the the ants are terrible people. They're also physically ugly. One's described as being incredibly thin, and the other incredibly fat. So there's that that sort of conflation is something that is frustrating for a lot of people, and I think it is present in a lot of his work. Um, and then the anti-Semitism thing, I don't know all the details, but he wrote he wrote like an essay um, later in life that was very critical of Israel at the time. In the, uh, there was like an Israel and Palestine conflict going on, um, and he he was very critical of Israel. And then he even said, like, I'm not anti-Semitic, I'm anti-Israeli, something like that. Um, and then I think the editor like changed it to anti-Jewish or something. So th- there's like... There was some confusion there, but he even said then uh, to the New Statesman in August of 1983, quote, there's a trait in the Jewish character that does provoke animosity. Maybe it's a kind of lack of generosity towards non-Jews. I mean, there is always a reason why anti-anything crops up anywhere. Even a stinker like Hitler didn't just pick on them for no reason. <laughs> yeah, fuck him. So you can imagine that people were pretty upset about that. And um, that in, that quote in particular, I think, is is one of the ones that his family had to come out and like apologize for later on. Um, some people criticized them for taking like 30 years after his death before they finally came out and, and apologized for it. Like literally it was in 2020 when they finally published a statement apologizing for that. Um, so yeah, it, it, quite a life. And, you know, there's definitely some racial stereotypes in his work. Um, definitely some misogyny, definitely some race, racism is present. Um, clearly a president at that point in his life. So uh, you know, take it, take it for what you will. I'm just pre- presenting it for the listener. They can decide, you know, how they want to feel about him. Um, but uh, you know, I think we're now going to focus on the writing. We're not going to focus on the story. But I wanted that sort of context to be there. Loss of respect from James here. <laughs> yeah. All right. So if you're ready, I think I'm just going to read a little bit of plot summary, and then we can talk about the meat of the story. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So James Henry Trotter is a boy who lives happily with his parents in a house by the sea. Unfortunately, when he is four years old, a rhinoceros with a strange carnivorous appetite escapes the zoo and eats James's parents. So he ends up with his two cruel aunts, Spiker and Sponge. Instead of caring for him, they treat him badly, feed him improperly, and force him to sleep on bare floorboards. After James has been living with his aunts for three years, he meets a mysterious man who gives him a bag of magical crystals, instructing James to use them in a potion that would change his life for the better. While returning home, James stumbles and spills the bag on the ground, losing the crystals as they dig themselves into the underground. A nearby peach tree, in turn, produces a single peach which grows to the size of a house. Spiker and Sponge build a fence around it and earn money by selling viewing tickets to tourists. James is locked in the house and only able to see the peach through the bars of his bedroom window. After the tourists have gone, James is assigned to clean the rubbish around the peach and finds a tunnel inside it. He enters it and meets Centipede, Miss Spider, Old Green Grasshopper, Earthworm, Ladybird, Glowworm, and Silkworm, who become his friends. Okay, so uh, mine said Ladybird. This says Ladybug, but it was definitely Ladybird in my book. It's Ladybug in the movie. I think they call Ladybugs Ladybirds in in England. England, So I assume that was kind of the difference there. But I had the American version, so it's interesting that it was still Ladybird in mine. Was it Ladybird in yours? Yeah, it was Ladybird in mine too. Okay. Uh, 
I, I thought that that was weird as well. I kept, just kept assuming that it meant Ladybug. Yeah. The the fucking rhino always really fucking freaked me out. <laughs> rhino ate your parents. Yeah. <laughs> it's like so ridiculous. It's hard to be like genuinely sad about it because it could have been, he could have gone with something like really like real, like someone was hit by a car or like got a disease or something that happened. But he's like a fucking rhino escapes from the zoo and eats his parents. It's It's so ridiculous. It's absurd. Right, and is there a metaphor here? Yeah. I don't know, but don't know. maybe a yeah, rhino. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. But uh, if the movie doesn't just turn it up to fucking 11 yeah. uh, with their rhino stuff. Interesting way to start a story because yeah. you have an orphan, which we've already... I mean, I, I think it's that an orphan is inherently trapped in a situation that they wouldn't have chosen. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And then the idea of of breaking away from that is like so drastic for them and, and like such a such a needed relief yeah um so like setting setting up this like awful environment uh it feels again it feels like mr dursley and aunt petunia it sure and, does and, and dudley and yeah which we should say like, like they feel like this because this is right before this was right, right. 61 i did not realize this book was as old as it was either um one thing I, I i think is funny is one of the lessons this book seems to be imparting on us is that if you're having a bad life as a as a young kid you should accept magical candy from a strange old man who tells you not to tell your caregivers about it and to just take right. it cuz it'll make your life better and then and then he creeps away into the like into the fucking bushes cackling is how i imagined it right right i i this whole thing might be a drug trip it very well could be I, again, like it says he drops it but maybe he popped one and everything that follows this is like him on an lsd or some shit like it, this could be really dark yeah so what is the <laughs> rhino in this situation <laughs> I also thought that he was this. This story seems like a riff on the James and the Giant. Is it ja Jack and the Giant Beanstalk? What is the? Is it Jack? Yeah, Jack and the Beanstalk. Jack I and think. the Beanstalk, right? Yeah. Because like this feels very much like Magic Beans to me, right? Right. Yeah. So I, I feel like that had to be an influence for Roald Dahl in, in, in making this thing because it starts out in like a much the same way, but instead of um, instead of a beanstalk that leads up to a giant, it's like it just makes this peach. Right, and it also makes yeah. these animals huge. And I want to, like these insects. What would have happened if he had taken these things? Would he have become a giant? Well, in the movie, he does take it. Well, yeah, he becomes stop animation. So maybe that's the answer. <laughs> if he takes this, he becomes a stop animation character. Right. Um, but in the book, like unclear to me what would what would have happened if he'd actually swallowed some of these things. Become a giant, maybe. That's gonna make your life better. <laughs> yeah. I guess you could like, you know, crush your ants or something. I don't know. Yeah. So anyway, I just thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> um, and, and then and then we do meet um, all of these insects, and uh, I think they are um, wonderfully uh, fun and and unique, and their personalities evoke the kind of creature that they are in, in delightful ways. Um, I, I really like this group, uh, this ragtag group that becomes his kind of found family to replace this awful situation he was in. And that was something I, I absolutely loved as a kid, too. I remember loving that. Yeah. Well, so something I loved as a kid is just like creatures and insects and animals and and this idea of Roald Dahl writing this for for one of his children. And like maybe they hate spiders. Maybe, they hate, you know, they don't like bugs. And, and like I like the idea of writing a story centering around these bugs and being like, look, each of these bugs over the course of the story, each of these bugs have a very specific, you know, uh, 
reason why they exist role and like and role within, within the ecosystem and, yeah. and everything and yeah like the the, the grasshopper plays music and yeah like that I, I just thought that was really cool and clever to like frame it in that way for a kid and like because i never now even in the movie where they have like some really freaky looking bugs at times i never thought of them as like icky or creepy or anything like that it was more like just weird humanoid they stuff were icky that, and creepy for like different reasons in the movie <laughs> Um, okay, but since you're talking about what they actually do, let's get into this next paragraph of a uh, plot here. So the next day, Centipede cuts the stem of the peach, causing it to roll away and crush James's ants as it reaches the sea and is surrounded by ravenous sharks. James uses Miss Spider and Silkworm to make threads, while Earthworm is used as bait and draws 502 seagulls to the peach, whereupon the threads are tied to their necks. The peach is lifted off the water, high above the clouds, the Peach encounters the Cloud Men, who are portrayed as responsible for weather phenomena like hailstorms and rainbows. Centipede mocks the Cloud Men, but James is able to avoid an altercation by bringing the Peach to a lower altitude. James realizes that the group has reached New York City. Okay, so this is where you're talking about, like, they each have their own roles, right? Like, we, James is sort of, he's, he's problem-solving, and it's really fairly simple stuff, but he, he gets, like, super praised for his, his like, wits by these by these insects and i love that that sort of empowers you as a kid reading this you have a, you have value and it's something that they might have thought of too like the problem of we don't have any food to eat everybody who reads that book as a kid goes why don't they eat the peach and then james has the idea hey let's eat this peach and then i think that's like an easy win for you you're like yeah that's a good idea that's what i would have suggested and then all of a sudden now you feel like you're james and you're you're a part of this story yeah Made even more real by the fact that, like, we share a name, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you had no problem feeling like you were James, huh? Right. Yeah. So I think this story really could t speak to a child who'd been through abuse, a child who'd been through, like, a lot of things that children usually shouldn't have to go through, like, like not having enough food, um, you know, writing. F I just think, like, having these sort of relatable things in a story or 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 it makes children thankful for what they do have you know what i mean in in similar kinds of ways so um yeah i mean it, it's kind of serious stuff if you think about like child starvation and, and like that kind of stuff is like those are heavy to topics and we've basically talked about it up to this point but this book is dark it doesn't really flint it looks at pretty unflinchingly at like the death of his parents and it's kind of played for almost laughs with the rhino thing it's just too absurd to get too sad about, I think. Right. Yeah, maybe something like that. And and a lot of the story is that it's all of this is so absurd that that you kind of take it even a child would take it as like a lighter story, not to be taken very seriously. So this is the part that really for me has has stuck with me. Like I said, the main thing I remembered about this was being on a floating peach in the ocean and having the bottom getting eaten by sharks and then and then the the plot to tie it to seagulls and lift it out of the water i thought that was such a cool idea it makes sense in like a child brain way right and like i feel like it like this wouldn't really work like if you did a mythbusters on lifting a giant peach out of the water by tying you know lassos around a bunch of fucking seagulls i guarantee you that wouldn't work <laughs> but it's cool it's like it's a fun kid kind of thought of like yeah that could work right i didn't remember it being sharks i didn't remember what the like what the the conflict was in the water. I just remember being on the water, and I remember flying. I do remember the sharks because I, the there's in the in the book it talks about how the the peach keeps getting like sinking down into the water and getting smaller. They later say like maybe they were imagining it because it wasn't actually that eaten up. But 
I remember that being very visceral to me. The idea of like chunks of the peach getting eaten underneath them was scary. And this is one of those things that made like shark scary to me when I was a kid. Um, and and I think this book, you know, played a role in that. Like, you know, we talked about the propaganda against sharks. Uh, <laughs> yeah, when we talked when we did Jaws, we talked about that. It's like, yeah, he's redeeming the spider here, but he's he's you know making the sharks look terrible. Uh, <laughs> um. But this this imagination, this this wonder, right? Like the the idea that you could lasso a bunch of seagulls and fly, is such a fun idea for a kid. Um, and that sense of wonder is the hallmark of a of a really good piece of uh, middle grade fiction to me, because I think that's the that's when it's most important is to have that in there for kids, especially when it's kind of a fantasy topic like this. Um, and it's what made me fall in love with the book. Until rereading it, I never thought about how much of an impact the story probably did have on me. Yeah. Um, but it clearly did. Like, there's a lot of things that stand out to me in terms of, like, things that I look for even today. Like, like sort of absurdity and, like, fun but serious and taken seriously. And I don't know. Like, like it, it would be crazy to think that all along so a lot of my taste was formed by James and the Giant Peach, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I could see it. One moment that really stuck out to me uh, because I was, I was, I was giving him credit for how he's sort of like teaching kids some. I know I didn't cross reference this or whatever, but I assumed the stuff about like the ears being on the side of the body for the grasshopper or something. Like I assume that's all true. So like I thought it was cool that he was sort of injecting some like real facts about these insects, and in so doing like generating a natural wonder and a natural appreciation for the before the natural world right and in in kids and to be able to look at something as common as a grasshopper and think that there's actually something amazing going on there and now all of a sudden as a kid like I remember feeling this way like I was looking at insects differently after reading this book um and I think that's a really cool profound effect to have and I wonder if I bet there were people who became scientists and studied biology and that this book was a piece along the way of them of them becoming that. Like I, it, it seems like this. It has that sort of effect on on people. It's an interesting British look at American New York. Yeah, and like this idea of like we're going to go to New York. That's like a destination. Mm-hmm. I didn't mention this, but I did read that when he came from war torn Europe, where he'd been fighting for years, to America, he was struck with the just the amount of plenty plentiful food and happiness and wealth and like disconnectedness that he was surrounded by um so it sounded like he was kind of bitter about it when i read it but maybe there is a bit of that like because america was treated as his destination and this you know this wonderful place he wanted to go so i wonder if he did have a bit of that feeling too from that time period in his life i I think it's definitely possible i mean I saw a bit of it within the story. One moment that stood out for me, if I can. Um, <laughs> they're flying on the peach, and they look down, and they see the Queen Mary uh, in the water. <laughs> and <laughs> the captain starts, like, calling out all these bugs that he's seeing. And the other people on the boat are like, he looks like he's been in the whiskey again, which made me laugh. Um, <laughs> and then uh, I was just thinking about how I've been on the Queen Mary. I went to uh, a Stoker con uh, like five or six years ago that was at the Queen Mary and I slept in the Queen Mary because um, it's no longer like out at sea. It's now been f- permanently uh, docked 
and turned into a hotel, basically. And they had a big convention there, met George R. R. Martin and a bunch of other authors. Um, so it was just cool. I was like, oh, shit, the Queen Mary. This was when it was still active, probably, and like sailing in the ocean. So it was neat to see it show up and be like, I've that's been on crazy, that man. That's super insane. That's that's such a crazy fact, especially because this was written in like the six, 61 or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, I think it sailed for for a long time. I don't know the exact dates on it, but yeah. Um, and then and then I was giving him all this credit for the, the, the like real stuff, and then all of a sudden we go to the clouds and there's cloud men. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which were pretty funny, but like it was it, it was still that same kind of wonder, right? Like it's the kind of thing you look up at the clouds and you're like, what if there are fucking people up there? Like it's that kind of thought that kids have all the time. So it's kind of fun, even though it is not scientific at all. <laughs> There's these wraith-like, wispy, hairy guys who are super light, and they're throwing hailstones down, and then they start pelting the peach with it. I did not remember this part of the story at all. I didn't either. Honestly, and, this was and, gone from my head. <laughs> right. And and it's like such an interesting part that stands out to me now. You know, I wonder if there were kids who walked away because there were like factual things about bugs. If there were kids who walked away and they're like, yeah, yeah, they have like machines that create tornadoes and hurricanes and yeah. throw hail. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Uh, there, there, that might have been some some children's experience. And if and, and if you if you could fly into a rainbow, you would like crack it in half. <laughs> yeah, it feels like he was definitely on something when he writes some of the when he, when he gets <laughs> I don't know, to some I don't know. of these places. I mean, at the, at the very least, he's leaning into a sense of wonder that has stayed with him from his time um, in the Air Force. Now, I don't know how much he continued to fly in his later in his life. I don't know that, but I did read that when he was because he was stationed in Africa for a lot of it. And one of his favorite things to do would be to look at the wildlife as he flew over them, to like watch the wildlife running around on the ground. Um, and just the idea of like, being up in the clouds and like he probably like daydreamed or like thought like, what if there were somebody in the clouds? Like it felt like somebody who loves flying to me when you're reading these sections about the peach flying through the air. It's pretty yeah. neat. Yeah, you're definitely right. That's that's part of what it is, I think. And then... Um, let me read this last bit of uh, plot here. The massive peach lands on the spire of the Empire State Building. It is mistaken as a bomb at first, resulting in the arrival of police and firemen. Calming the crowd, James tells his story and becomes friends with the many children in New York. They eat the peach, and James and his friends get their own jobs. So speaking of dark things that I feel like children don't know about, bombs? Yeah. Like, they're like, oh, it's a bomb. <laughs> A bomb in a large city? Like, that's, like, not something I feel like kids are thinking about early on. I don't know. Yeah, it was interesting that that happened. But uh, it did. Yeah, everybody thinks it's a bomb, which I don't know if you'd look up and see a giant peach and think, it's the biggest bomb ever. Uh, he's leaning into maybe some of this post-war paranoia. It was the 60s, right? So this is probably Cold Warish time. So maybe it was very, just very on the mind. Yeah. Um, I did think that a lot of the lines the cops were throwing out were hilarious. Mm-hmm. Some of the funniest lines was they were they were th- there was like different cops suggesting what this might be, and some of the like at first it's like real things like a manticore and like stuff like that like like a real sort of mythological terms right, and then they start throwing out no no that's a snoz wanger, and then another guy's no a wang doodle <laughs> like I wrote down a few of these they yeah. <laughs> I'm like what the fuck's a wang doodle. <laughs> They're also throwing out a lot of like very British phrases. They're yeah. like poppycock. Yeah. How dare. And like you're <laughs> But we're like, in we're in New York, so I don't know about that. Right. <laughs> um I did think that just that whole thing was hilarious and they're talking about space guns and like aliens and Martians and all kinds of stuff. That was pretty fun. And it all was in, delivered in this fun rhyme too. There's a lot of rhyming at this point cuz at times there are songs sung by like different characters. And then there are other times where like all of a sudden as they're speaking the way they're speaking starts to rhyme with sometimes with the narration 
Um, so it's it's almost um, it's just very whimsical. It's playful, and it's playful in a way that is like on the line, and not necessarily because there's a character who is now delivering a poem, right? Like it, it it's like Lord of the Rings, but uh, you know, instead of instead of having like a, a break to have song, it's just like now the now the text itself starts rhyming, and that's kind of how yep. it is here. Um, I did. Yeah, it kind of felt like Tolkien, and then the film chose to turn it into like this, like vaudevillian yeah. sort of like musical, much more of like a musical. Yeah, in the yeah, film. yeah. So I don't want to spend too much time here because I know we still got to do the movie. Um, he he also ends up living in the pit, the the peach pit here in New York. He befriends all these children. They eat the peach, which I always felt like was a kind of a weirdly profound moment in the in in both the book and movie um, because it kind of teaches you a lesson about letting things go that won't last forever. Like he can't, like you want him, but he kind of does still cause he keeps the pit. So he kind of gets a part of it at least forever, but he has to let it go. And he shares it. Like he's very generous, right. In the way that his, his aunts are not, he's, he's sharing it with the children of New York and he makes a bunch of friends. Generosity serves him well in the end, I think. But it does feel like a finite ending because it is this like, Oh, the magic though. The ma- there's magic in that in that peach, and it and it sort of all goes away, and it's like disseminated to to yeah, you know, the people of New York. Although in, the in the insects and, and stuff don't revert, they just go get jobs. They yeah. like, go get jobs in the city, <laughs> which I thought right. was pretty cool. Um, and then also there is the reveal at the very end that uh, you know, in like a fourth wall break, and uh, then I decided to write a story, and that's the story you're reading now. Um, and that ends up making it into the movie too. Yeah, I thought that was pretty funny that he like retroactively wrote all of this all along. Yeah, so we're actually it is James who's narrating this whole thing. It's kind of a cool, you know. And, and when you're a kid, you maybe haven't experienced something like that before, so it, it can feel fresh. Apparently, Roald Dahl. There were multiple attempts to adapt a lot of his stories in this in this specifically, um, but it wasn't until he passed away that his widow approved uh an offer to have a live action version which we which we go on to see and uh Roald Dahl's widow said that he would have been delighted with what they did with James it is a wonderful film so you know interesting to think of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory had to have been adapted before he passed yeah there's a whole story behind this that we will touch on if we cover it but he did not like that adaptation Ah, and so that would be he probably then, part of it. I think decided he didn't want any more adaptations to be made for a long time, and it wasn't until after he died that a lot of these started getting made. Interesting. All right. Well, that's good to know. I wanted to. I wanted to see like what you thought. If if you do, you think that he would have been a fan of this? Yeah, I don't know. I, I again, like I, I, I just learned all this stuff about this guy. I don't feel like I have a good enough sense of who he was as a person. Supposedly, he was very mercurial, and he uh, would be. So a lot of the people kind of wrote off some of his anti-Semitism for this way. They were like, oh, he, he might have said that, but he was like kind of that kind of guy who would just have like a whim where he'd say shit and he wouldn't even really believe it. So I don't know. Like, I don't know the guy. These biographers, I assume, know him better than I do, you know, a lot. So it's hard to say. And what he would have liked or di- wouldn't have liked, I don't know. His wife seems to think he would have liked it. So I'll grant her the benefit yep. of the doubt. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into the movie. So. The filmmaker is Henry Selleck. He's an American director, producer, screenwriter, production designer, animator, and storyboard artist who is best known for directing the stop-motion animation films The Nightmare Before Christmas, James and the Giant Peach, Coraline, and his upcoming stop-motion film Wendell and the Wild in 2022. Um, So 
listeners, if you haven't heard this before, we covered Coraline and we I would definitely recommend going back to check that out. We talked more about Henry Selleck. I love those episodes. You know, in retrospect, we've talked about favorite episodes on the podcast a few times. And like those are mm-hmm. some favorites of mine. I, I think those are really fun. The good story, Neil Gaiman. And what a what a great movie. I, I really love that Henry Selleck film a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And in in that movie I got to gush about Leica, which is a you know, a studio that I've talked endlessly about how like I just love the craft of what they do and um it, they're they're really almost single handedly like helping to continue the the art of stop motion animation and um you know, there's been others since since they've kept it going, but they're definitely a bastion of it. I I, Henry Selleck, these these movies directed by him are so much attributed to Tim Burton. So that's something interesting that we dig into as Often, well. Often, like I, I think for the longest time, I thought a lot of these movies were Tim Burton. Yeah, and they're not. He produced them, and it was you know in combination. And I'm sure his influence is in there. And I absolutely think it is. There's stuff in this movie. There's stuff in Coraline. There's stuff. Uh, I, I don't Nightmare know that he Christmas. actually directed. I don't know that he actually produced Coraline, but The Night Before Christmas and and James and the Giant Peach. You can definitely tell there's like a there's something about like the gothic architecture look to like even New York in this film and like the ways that they they're they're clearly on like a set with a backdrop that's supposed to look very stylized yeah. and like leaning into that too like not yeah. trying to hide it. And it's I, I talk about it all the time but German expressionism that sort of elongated like houses and and like weirdly um you know, like arch- the architecture is kind of like asymmetrical and stuff and misshapen. Yeah. yeah. When, you, when the house of the ants is like, it's all twisted and, and it's up on a hill almost. with a big, it just, it doesn't seem like it's possible. And that's from the story actually, but just to see it visually represented, it's very like reminiscent of a Tim Burton, but, um, Henry Selleck, he hit, these films are so important. You know, the nightmare before Christmas was like a cultural touchstone movement like around our us growing up and and like it, i mean like it, it remains that relevant and then of course like there is the the massive nightmare before christmas reference in this movie yeah that i'm sure you caught right I, absolutely yeah. so i was gonna ask you i assume this came out after that after that film, it did right? yeah okay. it was so nightmare before christmas 1993 james and the giant peas 1996 okay so huge huge shout out and sort of reference to nightmare before christmas like that that was in that scene we'll, we'll talk about it in a little bit mm-hmm. but this might be a controversial opinion, and I'm sure it is actually, but I don't think either of those other two films hold a candle to Coraline, in my opinion. Interesting. I, I think the Nightmare Before Christmas. I don't know when you last saw it, but it's it's pretty fantastic. It's pretty it's pretty good. But yeah. Coraline, like I said, Coraline was created by Leica, and Leica's attention to detail and the things that they did. Again, Coraline came out in 2009. Nightmare Before Christmas, 1993. So yeah. technology had come along. I think if you look at the stop motion in, in Nightmare Before Christmas and in this movie, just getting to how fluid it was in comparison to like the early days of stop motion, which, you know, date back to like the 30s and the original King Kong. And obviously it's such a cool art form. Absolutely incredible animation on its own. I, I'm a huge fan of. But this stop motion frame by frame. It's that mixture of um, it's a mixture of practical effects, which we love and animation which we also love, yet it's somehow both, and it's so cool, right? Because you can see texture, and you can you can you can on, you can appreciate it on different levels of like being in it, and then also realizing that these are figurines being moved and manipulated, um, and that's so cool, right? Like the the touch of the artist is is so present in everything. And if you see movies like the original, like like The Lost World from like night from like the twenties, and then King Kong from the thirties, like. The way that like you can see the armatures and they're moving and the, it's kind of like jittery, 
the, seeing how far the the for, the medium had come uh, up until these movies, it, it's just incredible. Well, and because like, we talked about it in um, Jurassic Park, which marked a turning point where a lot of CGI started replacing stop motion in major films. And so it's really cool to have people like the people at Leica and Henry Selleck continuing the art form past the point at which it's necessary and common and just doing it because they love it and because there is value to that art form. Fantastic Mr. Fox is, is like this, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And and you, you have a vision like Wes Anderson's beside Fantastic Mr. Fox and, and like just the way animation is like no holds barred. You can really successfully do anything you want, but it still adheres to the laws and I say laws, but really the rules and and the language of, of film that we've built up over the last hundred plus years. And the ways that stop motion animation uses traditional cinematography from feature filmmaking and then also blends in that sort of like you can almost achieve anything you want with because you're moving you're effectively cre- controlling an entire world whereas you're you're at the whims of like actors and and all all kinds of other things in, in live action um seeing them like really elevate and use the advancement not just of the technology for the armatures and the and the the you know stop motion technology but also the language of film like as the film went further and further you can see these sort of like sweeping epic shots and like really intricate like interesting movements and and the ways that like we go underwater in this film there's all kinds of things that it felt like they were doing because they could and because it was it was visually interesting and then if because ultimately it served the story so yeah, I just can't talk enough about how much I love stop motion animation. And and if you want more information about Henry Selleck, check out our Coraline episode because I know we, we talked about it more there. Mostly positive reviews. I went looking 91% on Rotten Tomatoes from 74 critics with an average score of 7.2. The film premiered at number two at the box office and it took in 7.5 million that weekend, stayed in the top 10 for the next five weeks before dropping to 11th place in the box office. And then it went on to, to gross $28 million, 28.9, so really 30, which went against a budget of $38 million. Yeah, I read that. I saw that it was considered kind of a bomb in the box office. And, and it's unfortunate because like there are films that come out that are kids films that you're like, oh, this was a film that was made for a kid. And it's sort of like lowest common denominator fare. They're doing what they can to just like entertain children. It's not for adults. And then you see a film like this come along that has so much artistry and so much craft and so many departments. I read that there were like 130 people who were uh, articulating the puppets and people were having to create them. And, you know, I, it's just like, I can't even believe how much work would have gone into this. I, I did see that it went on to have a cult following people like this, people like this movie. Um, I, I think there was a mistake made fundamentally in this movie. And that was the decision to have any live action. I think, I think someone fell in love with the idea of him transforming into a stop motion character and taking one of these magic crystals. Um, And I can see that thought and thinking that would be cool. And it is kind of cool. But ultimately, it clashes so much with with what's going on. All of of the um, live action stuff for me was the weakest parts of the entire movie. I thought the performances weren't particularly good. The, The characters against these backdrops, it was just weird. Um, it, it felt disconnected. Like he was trying to have his, 
his visual style from his stop motion at the same time as having these live action people walk around in it. And it just didn't work. And I would have liked this movie to just be stop stop motion the entire time. Just give me the whole thing that way. I did read that uh, one of the reasons for the live action was to cut down on animation costs um, because it was like significantly more expensive to animate uh, to stop motion animate some of it. Hmm. But I I don't know. I think you could have done it with a Disney budget. You probably could have made it work. Um, And I wonder if it actually ended up being cheaper because it looks like a lot of the stuff they were doing. I don't know. looked pretty pricey in and of itself. So. Yeah, you just got to think about how much time it takes. I agree, but the parts, the early parts did work for me in live action. It was more the later stuff that mm-hmm. was like in New York that didn't work for me as much. I, I, I thought I was really getting something out of like the Tim Burton on a set weird peach growing. Like I, I liked that set. I, that stuff worked for me. I feel bad. I feel bad calling him out, but I really think the child acting here by by young James was not very good. And that was one of my problems with it. This was actually his only credit ever, I believe. Yeah. So I don't know if that that had anything to do with it, but I I can see it. You know, he was a very dramatic child actor. It's tough, right? Like we've talked all the time about how when you're this young, it's very difficult to be a convincing actor. And so often, even in big movies, it just doesn't land. And that's why we always try and praise it when we do see a good child performance. And unfortunately, this is not an example of that, in my opinion. So I was talking about the people who just how many people worked on it for how long. And there was some there was a quote that like um, 32 department supervisors were responsible for making latex latex rubber forms baked into onto armatures. And like there was somebody that said that they spent six days uh, six days of filming to complete 12 seconds of screen time and like this that that idea of like insane uh effort mm. that then like goes on to be like a box office bomb like really bothers me but like you said it did go on to have a cult following i feel like it did great in in home release and like i feel like everybody i knew had seen this movie everybody my age growing up definitely saw this movie um yeah and it didn't so. do that bad from what you were describing right it just barely didn't break even. Yeah, but I mean, like, there have been worse bombs. <laughs> yeah. Early on, Steven Spielberg, Danny DeVito, there were a bunch of people who, like, wanted to get the rights to this. And um, eventually, Roald Dahl's uh, widow would would uh, sell the rights to Walt Disney Pictures. And, you know, this is, this is a weird fit for Disney, especially for the time. This is way before they were really breaking out to do things that, that weren't in their wheelhouse. And... This movie, like, I think that that's also part of why this movie wasn't successful is because they felt like it didn't fit the Disney brand entirely because it is darker and it does have some of this Roald Dahl stuff baked into it. And then it's also like um, Henry Selleck putting his like Nightmare Before Christmas vibe on it. His fertile imagination and unique storytelling, that darkly comic stuff we've talked about, the macabre. It has lent itself to different kinds of filmmakers coming in and doing something really unique and interesting with their own artistic visions. And he's, he, you know, we, we've had all these different filmmakers make super, I mean, Charlie and Chocolate Factory is an iconic movie, right? You know, maybe this isn't on that level, but it's notable. And then you have, you know, uh, uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Like, there's there, a wide range of Roald Dahl. Matilda was, a, you know, a, a movie that I saw a bunch because my sister absolutely loved it. Um, so it's a movie I saw a ton. And, like, the, those movies, the fact that those were all written by the same guy was always so weird to me. Um, but that's because I'm remembering the adaptations, which were made by very different filmmakers who had very different goals. 
Yeah. And then, uh, like, I, I want to get into some of the changes, but yeah. I did want to mention two other things. With Spielberg and DeVito, uh, notably, Spielberg went on to eventually, I don't like this movie, but he did He did uh, create a BFG film, mm. and then Danny DeVito was in Matilda, like you were talking yeah. about. So, like, these people, I think the, that, that Roald Dahl spoke to certain people, and they really wanted to work with his material. Yeah. Like, you know, we see Fantastic Mr. Fox and things like that. I mean, 250 million copies sold. Like, he was a, he's a big-time yeah. author. Randy Newman uh penned the songs and scored this film yeah i'm not the biggest randy newman fan like i don't have anything against the guys i don't personally love his his style of music the sound of his music so i didn't love the music in this movie Uh, it was one of my criticisms of it too it's like it was okay some was better than others but overall uh, this isn't the kind of musical where i'm going to be wanting to put that soundtrack on later you know like really good musicals are like that and this is just not like not that good Maybe there's a reason I didn't remember that James song. That like, right, James- that'd have been really good, right? Like you'd be you'd be banging that. <laughs> I just picture you driving your car. Someone rolls up and you roll down the window and you just got that. Ja- like, My name is James. Whatever. I'm so brave. <laughs> I'm so, so brave. brave <laughs> the I feel like this is a holdover. Uh, this is like a Disney decision. Like I think that like having someone like like Randy Newman come in to score this because it doesn't really fit to me yeah like it, it, the material and his style of music doesn't really fit um but yeah i mean it, it was nominated for an academy award for best original musical or comedy score so for this movie or uh, for a different movie for this movie okay yeah. i i don't see it but all right <laughs> yeah nominated you know yeah so. um we're not going to do a summary um we've already done that it's mostly the same with some notable changes we'll talk about some of the changes i just want to give uh, one of the things that i did like because i feel like i've been fairly critical I think there was some really funny lines introduced to this version. Laugh out loud moments. Um, I, I didn't write them all down, um, but I have a few. Like uh, there, there was a point where uh, the, the the earthworm makes a joke about how his brother was chopped in half by a uh, shovel. And he says, now I have two half brothers, uh, which I thought yeah. was really funny. And then there's another point later on where, um, what is it? The centipede jumps into the water and, and, and uh, I think it's the grasshopper says he committed pesticide which i thought yeah. was really funny like there's just like little like wordplay things none of that's actually out of the book so you know props to who you know the the adaptation and the, the screenwriters for introducing some really funny stuff uh, let's let's get to the the thing that i've been dying to talk about this fucking rhino <laughs> when i was a child yeah this was up there with the like wolf from the never-ending story okay uh as like things that legitimately f- kept me up at night the, like the was, fucking rhino <laughs> coming in out of the clouds to kill my parents and my name was james uh-huh. that shit fucking <laughs> that went deep and it scarred me and uh i i i didn't shit, even remember that scene <laughs> the rhino coming out of the clouds <laughs> is fucking terrifying to this day and like it happens twice it happens first and he loses his family and you're like oh fuck and then later on they like fight it and it's it's fucking scary especially for the time man that those effects i was like this is really happening right now and uh that that really stuck with i love me. that i love to hear about the things that traumatized us as kids <laughs> yeah I think it's always important to note well, let's talk about notable differences too so yeah wh- i wanted to ask you why there was a giant mecca shark i didn't know that was where i was going why right? I don't know. I I read somewhere that some somebody theorized that it was like a machine that was created by the the aunts to like recapture and bring him home. And I'm like, where is this theory? There is no from? evidence for that. They they they're not inventors. This thing was giant. It was crazy. I don't know what the fuck. I was, was like, maybe a magical crystal bounced like bounced down into the water and got into a shark. But why did it turn it mecha? 
They didn't turn anything yeah. else into machines. So bizarre. It, that I did not get that choice at all. It, it broke the like premise of the of, of the thing. Like they're supposed to still be in the real world. They've just transformed by the magic of these you know crystal beans, whatever. Yeah. But it kind of makes it kind of lends itself to the idea that none of this happened yeah. even more, you know, because it breaks maybe this almost. is all a drug fucking trip, too. Yeah. And both he thinks he tripped and dropped them all, but he actually ate one. And instead of turning into stop motion, he just fully went on a trip. Yeah. <laughs> at the end, instead of, uh, you know, I decided to tell my story. It's like at the end, he's like, and now I'm in a straitjacket and <laughs> this <laughs> is all a fever dream. It all could have been. Right? <laughs> Um, and then, yeah, I, I, you know, I, there's like a whole song about eating the peach and they're all just like, like just reveling in the juice of the peach. And like at a certain point, it got kind of gross to me, but like, I think it was supposed to be like exciting and like, oh, yum. But then like the grasshopper has got his feet. He pulls his boots off and he gets his feet in there and starts stepping on it. And they make like a bunch of cider so that they're like, seems like they're getting drunk off of it. Um, it was kind of fun, but also kind of gross. So like it was a re- weird mix. I, this movie, for whatever reason, sent me down a rabbit hole when I was thinking about just like the form of telling stories and how like musicals came about. It's like it's like a storyteller sitting down at a at a a campfire or whatever to tell a story, then breaking into song and also having like a choreographed dance. Like that's like the triple threat, the the storyteller, right? And and then having that in in a movie like this it, it I, I don't know it's just really funny well to it's think. a very play it's like then and then that becomes plays right and a lot of plays are musicals yeah. and have musical stuff in them and then that right makes its way onto film i think right yeah yeah and it's you know i think that it's it's doing it's being done less and less and yeah i, I think it just had something to do with like people wanted more than just the story at a certain point there's like, something about children's movies too that um, are famous for having especially Disney a lot of musical numbers especially Disney I don't know that this movie I don't know it, it, that, to me those weren't the strongest parts it wasn't the music in this film yeah. I mean it, it was it was a it felt like a slam dunk to make it a musical because there was poetry in in the actual source material so it made sense to me but it didn't like in during execution it didn't like land all the way for me yeah so let's talk about other weird differences this there's a scene where he falls into the Atlantic in the book and then the, the centipede. And then in the in the movie, they decide to do this entire underwater pirate journey, which I felt like was just there so that they could have Jack Skellington in this film. He goes, a Skellington! <laughs> when he sees him the, which And he looks just like Jack Skellington, but he's not Jack Skellington. It was distracting. It was really... All I could think about the whole time was Jack It was Skellington. a weird sequence. I was like, okay, this feels kind of self-indulgent, right? To reference your own movie that much. And to grab, like, the the compass and be like, jackpot, too. Like, Jack Yeah, Skellington. you're like, right. It, it, it was like... It, I don't know. I liked it, in, in a sense, but at this, it was really distracting me from the film at hand. Yeah. So I don't know that it worked all the I way. Agree. I agree. You show, you show a skull that looks like Skellington's skull somewhere off in the corner and that's the reference and that's it move on don't don't have a big musical number with all of these creatures and that it, it was too self-indulgent in, in i also opinion. wondered if it was like cutting costs because they already had the materials made to do a jack skellington they probably thing. wanted to put it in the fucking trailer i bet you there was a cut of that in the trailer that 
was trying to get people because Nightmare Before Christmas was so popular. That's probably what they wanted to. Catch and you, you know, what's wild to me, too, is like with these scenes that were like, oh, maybe they didn't work all the way. These musicals, the amount of effort that goes into creating the stop motion for these scenes is absolutely insane to think about these fight scenes underwater and mm-hmm. stuff with like people being pulled by wires and stuff and by like, like you know, silk or whatever mm-hmm. the uh, spider web is. And it's just it's insane it's so, so crazy to so think about. one of the biggest differences i picked up on early on was they threaded the empire state building and new york city as being a a, a destination from the beginning in a way that it, it didn't it would kind of was like a last second thing in the book i felt like just all of a sudden they're like hey we're going to america and i was like oh okay that's cool um i always wanted to go there and, and whereas this was like from the beginning it was a destination he wanted to go there was the whole tie-in of like oh he the the old the weird old man who's in the movie by the way weird old guy comes out of the bushes and gives him drugs um take take drugs from weird old men in bushes kids um <laughs> and taps him on the chest and and there's yeah you know it'll be fun you'll make friends and go on a magic trip with bugs <laughs> <laughs> and uh um so so i like that it was cohesive it made sense and there was like this whole journey they 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 dismiss the um dispense with the uh giant bomb approach and instead uh, it's just like, uh, I don't know, like, uh, it just, they, they see it's some sort of fruit and, and a bunch of people start coming up to talk to him and he turns back into a kid as he's climbing out, all the bugs go up into the air. The whole sequence in the New York didn't really work for me. It, it, it New York, it was kind of cool looking cause it was very stylized, but again, it just always kind of clashed and, um, I don't know that this cop shows up and, it, and he's this moral authority and, it just the whole sequence doesn't really work, and I don't think the acting is very good, kind of all around. But especially with the kid, and then the the ants show up in the crushed car that they've apparently driven through the fucking Atlantic because it's water pours out of it. So so what? a couple of things. Uh, I read that the the ants have a a rhinoceros on the hood of their car. So. Okay. So they're the rhinos. So they, ki- maybe, they killed the maybe. parents, and also the shark. I don't know. I, I, like that's there's... them in the water. Is them the like when they're underwater in their fucking car? That's the the shark. You know when that would make sense is if you're having a fucking drug trip, right? <laughs> or a James Bond movie. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, so the, the ants in general, like they were so over the top and so like they the makeup was so distracting to me because they were being made to look so hideous and. I don't know. They were they were so despicable. It 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 got so far into caricature. It kind of lost me. I, I I couldn't take them seriously as people, in order to actually view them as villains. It was just, they were just so broadly bad, which I guess can work for a kids movie, but for me it didn't work very well. Thinking about a movie like Matilda, um, I'm just remembering that 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 sort of a headmistress character is a lot more interesting. Um, she has more like layers to her, even though she is awful. If I'm, my memory of that serves, um, so it, it, just by comparison, like this, this fell flat. I did not find them particularly interesting. They're not that interesting in the book either. But he dispenses with them quickly, and then I mean, they're they're like extreme caricatures that are like so off-putting because they're supposed to be, but at the same time, it's like not super funny to to like joke about child abuse and you know what i mean like it doesn't really work and the stuff at the yeah, end yeah there's all they just have a lot of screen time in this movie i i don't know they're 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 definitely bizarre but that i agree with you with the new york stuff it really doesn't work i almost feel like you just you just get him up on top of that peach and then cut away and just say like you know 
and then t- and then cut to the pit in the city like yeah. figure it out like you don't need to show all that because that yeah. scene was bizarre then, and, and then like and... he has this interesting relationship with the spider miss spider that they develop a little bit more in the in the movie um but i guess she kind of becomes like a mother to him it's my implication at the end she's living with him and like cooking food for him and stuff right um, or it's the sexual yeah i was gonna say did you think there, there was maybe like a romantic <laughs> thing going on with them hinted at a couple maybe. a little bit that would be pretty fucking weird yeah but maybe hey <laughs> to each their own i guess to each their own, yes. <laughs> um okay so is there anything else you want to talk about with the movie or should we move on to to voting yeah i i just you know continue to love this the 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 stop motion medium yeah, it's and it's cool. unfortunate that this that this story isn't isn't like a little better but part of it is like i, I it fo- kind of followed most of the roll doll story in in its structure with some notable changes um but yeah, I think it, it kind of spent its time in in weird places. Like if it and take out a couple of musical numbers and maybe build a couple more scenes of like character interactions and things like that. Um, and then like that that la- that final New York scene is just I don't even know how to describe it. <laughs> just not very good. Yeah, but I think we've gotten to the point now where we talk about which one was better. So I am going to take the book. Um, I think that the art and the uh, the 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 craft of the stop motion itself is pretty astounding. And the look of everything continues to amaze me. Henry Selleck's creations here um, and, and all the people that he works with, you know, my hat's off to him. I, I think it, it, it's really amazing stuff. Um, but I've already outlined some of the reasons why the movie didn't wasn't very successful to me. I've seen him do much better. I think Coraline is like honestly a, a masterpiece. I love Coraline. Um, and... It, it looks so much better than this movie, in my opinion. There are times where this movie looks really good, but um, Coraline is just, uh, I, I think, artistically far superior. Um, so, yeah, ultimately, I'll give back to the book, even though the book was not without its flaws, um, and, and I don't think it was perfect, but I, I do like that it captured that sense of wonder, that sense of imagination that I that I touched on early. It transported me back to that time, um, and that was all really cool. Um, so I'll, I'll give it to the book. Yeah. I'm going to agree with you in this case. I go, if you had asked me before we started this project, like just thinking about the two things, I thought for sure I was going with the movie because it, it, it like for one scarred the hell out of me with that rhino, <laughs> but, but also just in general, like I, I, I love, this was probably one of the first stop motion animation films I saw. I, I definitely saw this before I saw Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, wow. Okay. I don't know. It, it, it holds a special place in my heart, but at the same time, like watching it now, there's a lot of like style and not a ton of substance to this adaptation, unfortunately. Yeah. And, you know, I, I wish that there was just like a couple more memorable characters and scenes. It was and- funny. A lot of the a lot of the insects were really memorable. They had big personalities. Um, There's a lot of uh, interesting interpersonal stuff going on between them that I was entertained by. You know, I, I do feel a bit bad for the films, if, you know, especially since we're both taking the book. But I, I do want to make sure we're we're granting it some of the, the you know praise that it is due right just the sheer amount of effort and just like what we see on screen like it doesn't deserve to have been a box office bomb so i'm glad that people have found it and i know that people love it um but in this case just reading that story really took me back to like i said like a a time of childhood that is kind of indescribable and also that that like sort of childish whimsy it felt like it had more of a direction to it whereas this the the adaptation kind of just felt like we were we flew through it. Yeah. It just it, it felt like I didn't get to live in the world as much as I did in the book. I think my main thing is that those live action parts didn't work for me. Book ending the movie with two live action sections that did not work. It, it 
leaves me with a sour taste. It begins with a sour taste. Everything in the middle was pretty good, even though I didn't love the music. Like if it had been that throughout, it, it would be a different movie for me. So I'm taking the book in this case, and uh, it's not with the film isn't without its merits. But in this case, okay. Book is superior. The book takes it. So that's score one for Roald Dahl. I'm sure we will revisit him in the future at some point. Let us know what next you would want. Do you want Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Do you want us to do one of those other ones I listed? There's a lot of them. Uh, let us know. Um, stick around to the end of this episode because we're going to announce a Stephen King project that was voted on by our patrons that is going to be our next project. So make sure to stick around for that. If you like this episode, please consider supporting us in the form of a donation. We have a Patreon patreon.com forward slash ink to film we have many different tiers for two dollars a month you get our bonus content which we put out monthly (laughs) and uh we talk about adaptation adjacent materials we just covered clueless which was uh, another adaptation of of emma by jane austen yeah what a a movie that was too we had a we had an interesting conversation about that um we really got to delve into like the 90s and the you know subculture and and being in high school because we all have we both have memories of the time in which we saw those movies and uh alicia silverstone and like what she what she was in that time period it was really it's really interesting uh a movie to talk about so yeah i'd love it if you went over to patreon to check us out there also you can let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on they all have a way to leave these uh, i think most of them do um you don't have to leave a long just a sentence uh let us know that you like the episode um getting those numbers up on our star ratings uh you know five stars we appreciate that um, that really helps, honestly, and it helps get the the word out, helps kind of signal to people that this is a podcast worth listening to. So it's a very uh, small action, takes a few seconds, and it can mean a lot to us. So we'd appreciate it if you did it. Yeah, and make sure to also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at ink to film and really any other social media platform. Yeah, I think I'm on all of them now. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not on all of them, but I'm on a lot of them. Uh, and thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. So uh, as I teased before, we are going to be going to our first official Stephen King project of the year. We have another episode uh, on another podcast uh, on the uh, Why the Book Wins YouTube channel and podcast uh, where we will be talking about Secret Window. And that should be coming out soon, I think, uh, when you're hearing this. But on our podcast, we are going to be covering one of the iconic Stephen King adaptations. We we put up a poll to patrons only. This is another thing you can do if you're on Patreon. Um, vote on these kind of polls. And we put up Shawshank Redemption, uh, Stand By Me, and Misery. Yeah, so big ones, right? But basically because when we were talking about it, we couldn't decide. We were like, how do you pick between these three that we want to do them all? You know, the the and, and I do want to put out the caveat of like, I think we will do all three of these movies at some point. So if you if the one that you want didn't win, it's okay. We will do it eventually. Just, you know, have patience. But the one that we are going to be tackling next, the one that won the poll was Stand By Me, which is a movie I haven't seen in ages, and I've never read the novella that it's based on, The Body. So I'm excited to get into that. We will actually be releasing our episode on The Body alone next week, and then we'll follow that up with an episode dedicated to the film. Yeah, I can't wait. I, I remember watching this in college and really enjoying it. So I'm excited to jump back okay, in. Okay, that's a lot more recent than me then, because I think I saw it when I was the age of the kids in the movie. Wow. So yeah. that's how long it's been for me. So we're going to definitely have to talk about the actors and Rob Reiner. We talked about Rob Reiner before, right. so we're revisiting Rob Princess Reiner. Princess Bride? Yeah, Is Princess right? Bride. Yeah, okay. Yep. Yeah, I'm excited for it, man. This should be a lot of fun. Uh, thank you for listening. And until next time, keep adapting.